The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. What's up? It's your boy Dean Thomas here. Thank you for stopping by and having a listen. This is my new show. Right, like I needed a new fucking show. But I got one. And oh my God, five shows down. This is the sixth episode. And this show is called Dean's Got Answers. Answers to what? Answers to anything and everything. But before we get going, hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating and review. Now, in this show, I'll break down the questions you have about the UFC, and I'll provide my answers. They may not be the answers that you are looking for, but that's not why you're tuning in, right? You want to hear from me, Dean Thomas, UFC vet, coach to the biggest names of the sport, co-star of Dana White looking for a fight, host of the Dean Diaries, I'm an analyst, podcaster, comedian, I'm a thug, I got an album coming out. No, I don't, but I still do my thing, but I'm going to keep this show Simple. Each episode, I'll tackle three questions about the UFC. I'll give you my take, my opinion, and my answer to each. I'll hit on everything from the fun and wild moments the sport has to offer to the inner workings of the sport. No question is off limits. And by the way, if you have a question for me, don't be bashful. DM me at Dean Thomas. Dean spelled D-I-N. And you know what else I'm going to do? Each episode... I am going to slide up into my Rolodex and holler at a homie for a second opinion. I'll bring on the biggest names in the sport and see if they agree or disagree with me. And today, I'm going to holler at one of the most legendary coaches in the game. That is John Hackleman, and he's notably coached Chuck Liddell and Glover Teixeira. On this episode, I'll break down and answer the following questions. First, which fights were most impressive at UFC 284? And I highly doubt it was Tyson Pedro's battle with diarrhea before his fight. Second is the what the fuck question. What the fuck is up with? And I'm going to talk about some crazy moments in the sport. On this episode, what the fuck is up with fighters moving up weight divisions? It's not always a lack of discipline and the answer might surprise you. Third. What is the most effective starting base in MMA? And for that, I will have Hawaiian Kempo Master. Hiya, hiya, hiya! John Hackleman, help me with the discussion. And after that, I am going to rapid fire answer questions from you, the fans. And I promise you, you can't stump me, chump. So turn up the volume, kick back, and take heed to the words I speak. 
Let's go. The UFC has created so many legendary fights. Now, one of the best super fight matchups in history happened at UFC 284. But before I break that down, I am going to answer the question, which fights were the most impressive at UFC 284? Now, this fight involved the big boys, the heavyweights. Justin Taffa looks like if Robert Whittaker ate Robert Whittaker. And he took on Parker Porter. Need I say more? Now, Parker Porter, that's me and RJ Clifford's favorite fighter, by the way. The fight starts out, and Parker looks good on the onset. He's active. He's putting combinations together. He's measuring to find his range. But Taffa showed great poise, patience, especially for a heavyweight. And before Parker was able to find his range, Taffa did a slight drop step and caught Parker with a perfectly placed short left hand that put him out. Now, in the heavyweight division, there's a big separation between the top guys and everybody else. And Taffa showed a couple of promising qualities that could allow him to move up. And it wasn't power. It was his patience and his ability to hit a moving target right on the button when it's coming forward. Time will only tell where he goes from here. And as for Parker Porter, I know he lost two in a row, but I refuse to believe that he's done. This is the fight game. You will lose. You just have to get back on your horse and ride again. Anytime you have a knockout one minute into the first round, it's going to be impressive. And yes, that was a perfectly placed and well-timed left hand. But I might have been most impressed with the dance number that Taffa did after the knockout. That boy looked like Usher. After that devastating knockout, the next fight on the card showcased two bright and gifted fighters as welterweights Jack Della Maddalena and Randy Brown faced off. Randy Brown's height and reach alone will give fighters problems. Then you add in that he can box, he is tough, and has a competent ground game. So Jack executed a perfect fight on how you beat a guy like Randy Brown. Good defense coming forward, leg kicks, and he took away the space behind Randy by trapping him against the fence before he unloaded the clip, and he ultimately knocked him down and choked him out. Jack is 4-0 in the UFC with all finishes. It's time to move up. Randy Brown was a tough test, unquestionably. But you did have the home field advantage. Time to increase your challenges. Why not Michelle Pajera or Vincente Luque? And Randy Brown, you'll be just fine. Dust yourself off, book another fight soon. This fight was probably most impressive because we got to witness how special Jack really is. While his level of competition is increasing, the time he's spending in the octagon is not. Directly after that fight, we saw a fight with a lot at stake as the interim featherweight belt was on the line for Yair Rodriguez and Josh Emmett in the co-main event. And this fight was as violent as expected, but not as nearly as competitive as anticipated and certainly not as nearly as long as we hoped it would be. And not that Josh Emmett didn't have his moments. He landed some big shots and he had some control time on top. But where I think he went wrong, he tried to move on the outside with Yair for too long. And that's where he got touched. And Yair's body kicks have an immediate effect when they connect. Yair showed a complete well-rounded MMA game submitting Emmett in the second round with a triangle choke. Now that Yair is the interim champ, what do we do? I'm going to go back on something that I said in the previous interview. I hate doing that, but I got to do it. I said on a different platform that Volkanovski should get a rematch against Islam. 
Now, after the whole debacle and how that went down, I don't think Islam is interested in a rematch. And I don't blame him. But more so, Yair's performance warrants him a unification title fight against Alexander Volkanovsky. Hopefully, we see that soon. And Josh Emmett, he's going to have to do some soul searching. He's a massive puncher, and he's made it really far behind his punching power. But he might have exposed himself in terms of having a complete championship-level MMA game. Will he still have the motivation to compete? If he does, he should. He'll still beat most guys in the top 10 with his power alone. But at 37 and getting older, was he doing this just to be champ? If so, I don't believe he has the skills to do so. We learned a lot about Yair Rodriguez. He's flashy, he's dynamic, he's dangerous. But what he really proved in this fight is that he fights with the same pride and durability of that Mexican blood that so many boxing champions have had before him. The excitement didn't end there as the main event featured a super fight for the ages with featherweight champion Alexander Volkanovsky moving up to fight for the lightweight belt against champion Islam Mahachev. This fight went back and forth and depending on where your bias lies in the scoring criteria, that's who you felt won the fight. I watched this fight only one time and I wasn't watching from a perspective of a judge. See, they pay guys to do that, not me. In a fight as closely contested as this one, you couldn't afford to blink from a scoring point of view. Now, Alexander showed that he was quicker on the feet. He also showed that he could wrestle with Islam, while Islam showed durability, great control, and great counterpunching. And in the end, all three judges gave the fight to Islam Makachev. Now, Islam showed the true character of a champion in a fight where he was the heavy favorite. And when the fight started, he ain't look like the favorite. But he still never let it deter him and get him out of character. He stayed disciplined. He stayed composed. And he was still able to compete at the highest level of his ability on foreign soil. And even after the fight and the accusations, he still maintains his championship composure and professionalism. Volkanovski showed that the size of a fighter is not as important as people make it out to be. We've often been told, be afraid of size. But when you accept that, of course it's going to matter. But when you have the focus on what you can do and what advantages you may have, you level the playing field. And Volk used his speed and movement very well to stay in this fight. And more specifically, one technique that he was using to hit Islam, and it was beautiful. It reminds me of Dustin Poirier's switch stance delayed punch. He switches stances to cover more ground. There's a slight pause. Then he punches over the top. This punch is very hard to defend because it's very hard to see. And it is not traditional boxing. In the end, neither man was robbed. And you can argue that either won. But the question remains, why is Volkanovski still the number one pound for pound on the list? I believe it has a lot to do with his resume, him moving up and wait for the challenge, and the fact that despite he wasn't a clear winner, he showed he might be the better fighter. So as you saw, UFC 284 proved to be as exciting as expected. So which fights were most impressive at UFC 284? Justin Tapa's knockout of Parker Porter. Jack Della Maddalena handling Randy Brown, Yair Rodriguez proving he's as dangerous as they come at featherweight, and of course, the Islam versus Volkanovski unsettled super fight. Now we know fighters fluctuate in weight, but what the fuck is up with fighters moving up in weight divisions? 
the most recent fighter that moved up a weight class was featherweight champion Alexander Volkanovsky as he did so trying to win the lightweight belt against champion Islam Makachev. Now fighters move up in weight divisions for many different reasons and before you start singing their praises you have to question why they did it in the first place. Some fighters like Dustin Poirier, Jared Gooden and now Davis and Figueredo they were just cutting too much weight and it was affecting their performances. Some fighters start getting older. Their metabolism slows down, making it harder for them to cut weight. Sometimes their body just takes so much damage through the years of abuse, they can't do the workouts to cut the weight. Now, in these scenarios, I applaud their self-actualization for making the decision to move up instead of killing themselves to make the weight. Now, John Jones has a very interesting case as to why he's moving up in weight. He really did clear out a division, one that in three years of his absence still hasn't made much sense. It's almost that it only makes sense for John to move up because he's dominated the light heavyweight division for so long. And this is really purely about his legacy. And there's something that resonates with those five words. Heavyweight champion of the world. Is that six words? Who cares? The point is, no matter how good of a fighter you are, nothing will ever beat the prestige of being the heavyweight champion of the world. John Jones justifiably should go up. Another fighter that should and would benefit going up in weight is Alex Pajera. He is a massive human being. He's got a tall frame and dense looking bones. Making middleweight cannot be easy for him. And if he continues to do it, I believe we will see a deterioration of his skills. I believe we will see him move up very soon. I also believe the only reason why he was fighting in middleweight was to fight Izzy. He has the potential to have just as much success at light heavyweight where he'll still be dealing with kickboxers that he's probably better than. Now on to the deception. Now let's not go ahead and start praising fighters right away for moving up to fight for a title. And trust me on this, all the guys that have done it have certainly earned their opportunity to fool y'all. Because literally, there's no risk. It's all reward for them. First, they jumped the line, fight for a belt against a bigger guy that if they lose, people will just say, oh, they were outsized anyway. It's all reward and no risk. They get a big payday, and no matter what happens, they're still going to be champ in their division. Just now, maybe a double champ. But it certainly takes a lot of the pressure off of a fight. Trust me. It's not ballsy to move up and wait to challenge for a belt. It's a luxury and a blessing to get that opportunity. I know this because I fought a majority of my career at lightweight. Then I went on the Ultimate Fighter and did so at 170. And sure enough, when I lost, I always used the cheap, lousy excuse, they were just bigger than me. So what the fuck is up with fighters moving up weight divisions? It's really a personal decision, but it comes down to growing out of a weight class, getting older, or sometimes being blessed with the opportunity for a no-risk, all-reward situation to dare to be great. What is the most effective starting base in MMA? Mixed martial arts is a mixture of so many different styles. Some styles may be better starting bases when starting MMA. So let me break down what the most effective starting base is in MMA. Allow me to pull back the curtain on my early beginnings. I didn't start off with a base. I actually started off mimicking fighters in the early UFC, watching videos, and reading books on fighting. 
And for that time, it wasn't bad because no one knew anything. So the little that I could pick up still made me better than most people. But I will say that not having a base has been an advantage of mine as a coach because I don't have a filter which I see the game from. I'm very open-minded to every possibility of using any technique that works to better a situation. So to further answer this question, what is the most effective starting base in MMA? I am going to holla at a homie. So please welcome legendary MMA coach John Hackleman, who's coached some of the biggest names in the sport, including Chuck Liddell and Glover Teixeira. It gives me great pleasure and honor to introduce the legendary, the one and only Coach John Hackleman. Coach, how are you today? Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Couldn't be better. Well, almost couldn't be better. So we are talking about starting bases in MMA, and I wanted to get you on because what everybody often talks about is, oh, wrestling, 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 and I know that that's not true. And I wanted to make sure that I had somebody on here who could represent and maybe give us some other insights as to some different perspectives of this. So first off, what was your what was your original martial art? Kaja Kempo. Kempo. Kaja Kempo. Kaja Kempo. Kaja Kempo is a is a martial art started in 1947 in Honolulu, Hawaii, by five guys, and they they were they were all black belts and. Karate, Ka, Judo and Jiu-Jitsu, Ju, Kempo, Kempo, Ken, Kempo, and Bo is boxing. And they got together because they didn't like it that all these white military guys were downtown Honolulu because World War II was over, it's 1947. So they wanted to get, you know, they to get better in street fighting. So these guys that had these different uh, um, martial arts that they were black belts in. They got together at some recreation centers and, and at parks and they would train and they called their art Kaju Kempo, which is it's a pretty well-known art right now. Uh, they call it the first MMA because there was groundwork and there was takedowns and there was uh, punching and kicking and stuff. But its main thing was the mental aspect where they, they wanted, they, they drilled killer instinct into you that you got to have killer instinct. There was no Miyagi here. Mm-hmm. Um, there, was, there was no Miyagi dojo, but it was a very, it was a very, it was a very tough martial art. And and growing up where I grew up, I knew I had to do a martial art uh, before I hit junior high school. So I looked in the yellow pages. I found this martial art. I went caught a bus. I went down there. I was ten years old, and I started training. And my instructor, in between his prison visits, was always he, he was uh, he was always there training us and yelling and you know he was he was a really mean guy, but he took such good care of me and he kind of molded me, um, and I feel like that was a great martial art to to um, start off with. Uh, now it's a little more watered down and it's a little more like katai and stuff like that where in the old days it was more you know more of a strict hardcore street martial art and street and and sport they're almost identical when it comes to training and 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 skills they're almost identical the the biggest difference in street and 
and sport, especially MMA. Now I'm not talking about kickboxing. But the only difference is sport, you want a UFC title. That's your main goal in life. Street, you want to go home to your family, not into a nursing home with a tracheostomy. So why do you think... So how did these guys... I mean, because this was back in the 40s. And at that time, no one really knew much about fighting. It was like you could either box. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't in the 40s. But I'm speaking in terms of prior to the UFC. Like, so for even for me, so in the 80s and 90s, no one really knew much about fighting. You just know, like, some people knew karate or some people knew judo. How did these guys have the foresight to know to blend it all together way back then? That's That would have to be a question for them. And I don't think any of them are still alive now. But they did, and, and and I took that art, and to be honest, when I found out personally first, because uh, 1976, they had a fight in Honolulu called the World Series of Martial Arts, and it was a tournament, and it was anything goes, and um, you could you could do anything, and and we learned quickly that when you when you punch somebody or kick someone in the head. They're gonna. They they don't like that. People don't like that. So they want to take you down. So the street fighters, you know, that's what they would do. The karate guys would usually punch and kick. Then they'd have some wrestlers, and they just want to take you down and hold you down. I never saw a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. Um, that was probably back, still back in Brazil. But but you find out really quick when you're fighting, and somebody takes you down. You think. Oh shit! Because you hear us saying, you, you ask a karate guy, "What do you do? What, what are you gonna do if the guy takes you out?" I punch him. Yeah, they... I knock him out. I knock him out. And, and it's like, I wish that was that true, but I tried that so many times, I ended up on my back. So I realized quickly that takedown defense was a very important part of any fight. So back in the in the mid '80s, the pit was for, when I first first found the pit. That's one of the first things we started trying to develop in a really basic way. And then come 1990, we're doing the same thing, but now I get a guy named Chuck Liddell starts training with us. And now our takedown defense went to a whole different level. And he, you know, he would, he would work with us on, 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 you know, the takedown defense and then keeping it standing, you know? And so it, it just kind of went from there. So tell me about this introduction to Chuck. How did you meet Chuck? Like, why did he walk into the pit and go, yeah, let's let's work on some things? But listen, let me answer real quick. That for, for re- people that say wrestling, I love wrestlers. Some of my best friends, you know, like Sammy the, Sammy the Bull Henson. His son is living in my guest house right now because he wants to become an MMA fighter. Sammy the Bull Henson was one of the best wrestlers of... Uh, of our era, won the silver medal in the Olympics, then he won the World Games the next year. Killer wrestler. You know, I've talked to them. Matt Lilland, who I trained for like five to six of his fights. Um, I love these wrestling guys. They're great, and they have a great work ethic, and it, it's really important to learn how to take people down and how to defend takedowns. You have to have striking or at least submissions added to your wrestling and that makes it okay. Other than that, wrestling is great. It's a great part of MMA. It, it's the it's the it's the middleman. I mean, it's it's the pivot right there. Keep it standing or take it down. They decide the, the better wrestler. 
But if you just wrestle to wrestle, oh my goodness, there's nothing. There's no, I mean, wrestling now, you take them down, you pound them, you submit them or something like that. Or you defend the takedown and then you knock them out standing. But what does wrestling without striking or, or submissions do? They do this, then they do this. <laughs> but anyway, I love the wrestling guys. I feel like it's not the wrestlers that, that, you know, it's the best. I don't think there is a best art to start with. I think it's your ability and your willingness to accept and to learn and to go out of your comfort zone. And the wrestlers learning how to strike, learning how to defend strikes. The striker, strikers learning how to defend the takedown, learning how to take people down when they have to. And then jujitsu, the same thing. But that, that's how I feel about that. So the first time I met Chuck, he was, I was here training guys in my backyard. I was working full time as a registered nurse at the prison. And uh, I was training guys during the day. We're getting a reputation. We got the pit tattoo. Everybody was wearing pit jackets. They thought I trained at the pit. It was in my backyard, you know? And then some guy didn't like that. He, he, had a, he had a martial arts school in town and he didn't like what I was doing. So he called me and he said, you know, I, I don't really like what you do. I think it's bad for, for martial arts, you know? And I know you guys do a lot of things in, in the ring and stuff, but we trained for the street and you could not handle, you know, us. You know, you're a sport guy. You couldn't handle us in the street. I go, how about I come over this weekend to your gym, you and I spar without any rules. And he said, okay, come over Friday night at seven o'clock. So I was like, okay. So I call, I talked to my dad and I say, hey, like, drive me down to this uh, gym. I'm going to go spar with this guy. And uh, my dad said, all right, he's seen, he's seen that before. So I spar, I go down there. And there's this really, really nice dojo. It's like a, a martial arts dojo. Everyone's wearing the gi, and, and it looks like it was, you know, the water had a little water fountain at the and with the entryway. It was really cool. So I go into his office, shake his hand, I go, "Hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Where are we gonna do this?" And uh, he said, "You know what? I hurt my back this week, and I can't, I can't do that." But I said, "Okay, well, we'll make it another time." He goes. Well, how about you go with one of my students? And it happened to be Chuck. So I look out through the door and I see this guy shadow boxing in, in the in the in the mirror. And I was like, the first thing I thought was, who has a mohawk? What is that? It's <laughs> the first thing I thought. It was like, so I said, okay, so let's go. So he walks me out there, he introduced me to Chuck, and he goes, okay, well. Hey, there's no elbows, no knees, no this. I said, I told him, I said, I thought this was going to be a street fight. Anything goes. He goes, well, uh, you know, you okay with that, Chuck? And Chuck goes, yeah. And I said, well, let's go. So we started, we started going and, and it lasted for a while. And I could tell that Chuck was very strong and very tough, but he didn't have like, he was kind of a, you know, kind of a karate-ish guy. And he, he didn't use much of his wrestling. He did come in on me a couple times and get some clinching, but it didn't. He didn't take me down, and he was kind of easy to hit back then. And and so I was like, all right. So we shook hands. We said we're we're done. You know, this is good. Me and Chuck talked about it, and he came into the the dressing room, 
which was a bathroom with lockers. And uh, he followed me in and he goes, hey, can, can I train with you? And can you teach me some of this stuff? I go, yeah, sure. I gave him my card. And I, I drove home with my dad. I go, he won't be, he won't come. He's not going to call me. And he called me the next day, came to my gym, and he's, he was been there ever since. That's how I met Chuck. That is an amazing story. Does anybody ever, does anybody know that story? He has a better story. It's in his book. His book, his book makes it sound like it was a lot more brutal that first meeting than it was. <laughs> but it, I mean, I, I walked him around a little bit. And you know, with Chuck, I got so mad at him because I could hit him so easy right in the beginning so i get mad at him i'd yell at him i go come on like keep your hands up i was like because i'm trying i'm trying and da, 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 da. and then time goes on right and then pretty soon it's like fucking three years later he's telling me john keep your hands up you know i'm, I'm hitting you too easy so anyway amazing it was, it was that was one of the best things when chuck could could beat me up so easily part of me was like Fuck! This hurts, and a part of me was like, "I've created a monster, uh, a monster," you know. So you had to be proud. Was happy, of, yeah. So anyway, so that's how I met him. So let's uh, move forward. Okay. Then, then you move. Then you went on to train Glover Teixeira. Now we know his. Did he have a background in jujitsu prior to that? And what was, what's the history between you and him for that? He, uh, well, how I met him was. He fought one of my guys, his first fight and my guy's first fight. And it was it was at the Tachi Palace mm -hmm. where they used to have the WEC. Right. And so they put him together, two guys, first fight. He lived in Connecticut at the time. Um, he was a gardener in, in Connecticut. And my guy was one of my guys. He was actually Chuck's roommate. So my guy beats him. It was a tough fight. But me and Chuck were in the corner of our guy. And we kept looking at each other, man, this fucking guy's tough, man. So after the fight, you know, we went into Glover's dressing room and me and Chuck said, bro, you did, you did great, man. You have such a big heart. And man, I, he was such a nice guy. And we said, why don't you come train with us? And he was like, okay. So next thing I know, he flies in from Connecticut, uh, stays in my guest house and taught kids. He taught kids classes to pay his rent. And he joined my team. Wow. Um, and then you went on to coach a lot of other different fighters from Court McGee and some other notable guys. Ramsey. Ramsey, Ramsey yeah, Ramsey Nijum, yeah. So yeah, you yeah, you, you did you did your thing. I gotta give you your props on that. Steve Siler. Siler, yeah. Don't forget Tim Kennedy got his start Tim, at the pit. Tim Kennedy got his start at the pit? Yeah, he's from here. He's oh, no from kidding. our town. No kidding. Yeah. So is there any one thing in common that you may have noticed, any common denominator that you noticed within those guys that you could, because we've obviously established that it's not like a skill set base that's no, the better, yeah. but what is the common denominator that all those guys have had that really made them successful? I think there's a lot of little things, including conditioning is huge. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's just the, the, uh, the desire to get better and learn, improve on. Look at Glover. Glover came out like he was Tyson in the beginning. He was knocking people out over and right, left hook. I used to make him watch videos of Tyson and say, this is your homework, you know? And then all of a sudden he was a jujitsu guy already, but not, I mean, he started working on his jujitsu and his takedowns, which were a lot because of Chuck. Chuck was great at takedowns. He just didn't want to take people down. 
but and he was obviously everyone knows how good he was at takedown defense. But I think Glover got a lot of the t- his takedown proficiency working with Chuck, and you know that's what Chuck was trying to keep it standing, so Glover would try to take him down, and the steel was you know, the iron was sharpening the iron, so Chuck got much better at his takedown defense because of Glover, and then Glover got much better at his takedowns because of, of Chuck. Now you see later in Glover's career how important having those takedowns meant. I mean, he pulled out a lot of losses into wins with that with that sensational takedown um, uh, skill. He sure did, and that might have saved Chuck sometimes too if he wanted to go fall back on that. And it's surprising that he didn't. Um, why? Yeah. yeah. Why is it? Because I mean, he wouldn't. Chuck, he wouldn't. He, why, he wouldn't. Is there any reason for that? Because you would have never thought that he wasn't a wrestler by by trade. He would not do it towards the end. When he started losing his chin, um, I wanted him to bring the fights to the ground now. So we wanted him to go down and, and take the guys down. He had great takedowns, but he wouldn't do it. He wants to keep his standing. Like in training, even in camp, we'd have him doing takedowns, combination takedowns, all these, all, all these, you know, and but come fight time, as soon as the fight started, he wanted to stand there and bang. He refused to go. You could hear us in the back sometimes yelling, you know, he did it once with uh, with uh, Vandalay. You saw that. Yeah. Um, he got a, he had a nice take. But other than that, Chuck wanted to keep it standing. He wanted to keep it banging. He wanted to give the fans what they wanted to see, and he wanted to bang. So we could not. I think that would have helped him towards the end of his career as well. Um, but he he would rather go out slugging than go up a little higher with takedowns he wanted to just he wanted to go out his way that is amazing i mean it's honorable i wouldn't have went that route but to hear a man that passionate about what he's doing and to say you know what i don't care what's going to happen i'm still going to fight my fight i mean you gotta i gotta respect that i gotta love that now i got one more now you founded the pit what's going on with the pit now and what can we expect in the future the pit is it's just uh three years old to 77 years old we we teach everybody, you know, Hawaiian Kempo, which, which is a martial art that's, it's exactly like MMA for the street. So it's every technique that a, a, a MMA guy does is, is what we do. He would know our curriculum. There's nothing proprietary. You know, the only thing I add to it is severe conditioning. Uh, but then everything else is like you guys do at, 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 at MMA training, we do in, in Hawaiian Kempo training, the only difference is when you're doing it, you're visualizing winning a world UFC title. When we're doing it, we're staying safe for the street and the kids are, are staying safe on the, on the schoolyard and they're bullyproofing themselves. So it's the exact same thing as MMA and I want every single MMA fighter out there to have a future when they're done their career. I don't want them to be you know, having to do something they don't want to do for a living. You know, they've spent all this time becoming MMA stars and MMA experts. I want them to be teaching a martial art, you know, because that's what it should, even if they don't want to teach. If they don't want to teach, that's fine. But if they want to do that, I don't think they should say, well, I only know MMA, that's not really a martial art. You know, it could be. And it's really, it's there's a really fine line between 
street and sport and it's it's a really easy line to teach the different uh, those two different things i think i went off on a tangent well no but so essentially what you did was you took the entire sport of mma and put it into a curriculum to make it its own base as I, that's what I did, and yeah. it's really—it was really easy given my base of Hajime Kempo. I'll admit that, and then training guys like you know Chuck and some of the other guys I've trained that also have helped me a lot. I mean, when I was training uh, Matt Lindland, he was—I was going over clinch stuff on the cage. You know, he was a Greco-Roman star, so I was giving him. You know, then when I got guys like Sammy Henson, I was doing the doubles. Even uh, who's that guy? Uh, ben. Van Arsdale. Yeah, yeah, Mike Van Arsdale. <laughs> I would work with him and, it, you know, try to take me down. And next thing I know, I'm fucking in the air coming down. I mean, that guy was unbelievable. Yeah, I heard but, the stories about him. Oh, my God. But so that's, I mean, that's what I do. They're really the same, except, you know, one, one there's no ref and you don't, you don't stop hitting them, you know. And, and then in the street, you know, it, yeah, or, or in the cage, there is a ref, and you don't really want to hurt this guy. You have to sometimes. You just want to beat him to win a title. In the street, you want him stopped, whatever that takes, so you can go home to your beautiful family. I love it. Well, Coach, I appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming on the show. If there's anything I can Thank do for you. you, please let me know, and I hope to see you soon. You do so much for so many people. People love you, man. You are such an unbelievable ambassador, not only MMA, but you're a fantastic ambassador to all martial arts. Thank you very much, Coach. You have a good day, man. We'll talk soon. See you later. So that was the man himself, Coach John Hackleman. I appreciate his time. He was great. Told some great stories, and we got a lot of insight as to what he was saying. So to answer the question, what is the most effective starting base in MMA? My answer is this. There is no skill set that is the most effective starting base in MMA. But as John said, it is your ability to want to learn, to get better, even in uncomfortable situations. You have to continue to learn. And for me, that is the most effective starting base, is your desire to learn. Something fairly new here on Dean's Got Answers to close out this episode. Now, I ask for questions, questions about anything UFC or not, and I'm going to answer these rapid style. First, from Leonardo Jacksick. Are those alien balloons or just plain balloons being shot down? Asking for a friend. Homeboy, they weren't balloons being shot down. They were my hopes and dreams. From Kyle Vidorek. Why do black people wear so much deodorant? LL Cool J started that and Mama said knock you out video that deodorant clump under his underarms LL did that question from Tazki Kolana how would Shaq have fared in the heavyweight division first I don't think he could have made 265 but his body type defies all the scientific laws about fighting he would have did pretty well question from Tom McGuire 22 what was your walkout song and what makes for a good walkout song I never really had a walkout song. I fought in the days where the promotion played whatever they wanted to play. Besides, the only song I was interested in was the sirens from the ambulance taking my opponent to the hospital. And Tina Home Team asked, how come there weren't more Australians on the card? 
girl, there was 10 Australian fighters on a card of 13 fights. What more do you want? All right, guys, thank you for these questions. These questions were submitted on Instagram, and in the future, I will be asking for more questions, so please keep an eye out for that. On this episode, you got the answers to these three questions. One, which fights were most impressive at UFC 284? Two, what the fuck is up with fighters moving up weight divisions? And three, what is the most effective starting base in MMA? And as a special bonus, I answered you guys' fan questions, so keep them coming. Thanks for listening to Dean's Got Answers. We will be back in the near future with a new episode, so please be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dean Thomas. Dean is spelled D-I-N, and leave a rating and a review for the podcast. Also, hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next time as I'll have the answer for everything going on in the UFC. Those are my answers, and if you have questions, be sure to hit me up. Holla at your boy! At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.